Tonight we finish Paul's first letter to Timothy, so I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles there to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll consider tonight the final verses, verses 17 through 21. As we studied in, in the last portion of our lesson last week, the, the body of the letter is understood to have ended in verse 16 of chapter 6, but it doesn't mean the letter's over, but the formal body to the letter's over. The final words, then, in verses 17 through 21, are, in a sense, a P.S. to the letter, a postscript to the letter. Um, the Holy Spirit, through His servant Paul, actually adds two postscripts, one in verses 17 through 19, and the other in verses 20 through 21. Uh, a previous section of this chapter dealt with those desiring to be rich. But these final comments, the first P.S., if you will, verses 17 through 19, concentrates on those who are already materially wealthy. Paul points out two dangers. One is arrogance, and the other is dependence upon money. Paul recognizes that it is an occupational hazard for those who have material possessions to trust in their wealth to solve life's problems, and oftentimes God is given a back seat. There is no suggestion in these verses that riches themselves corrupt or that people should not enjoy what God has given. Not at all. But the wealthy must recognize that everything that they possess came from God. This recognition will be a protection against dependence upon wealth. The positive demands on wealthy people are clear here as well. There must be goodness and generosity, qualities which normally do walk hand in hand. Timothy has already been charged earlier in the epistle, several times in the epistle, actually to guard that which God has entrusted to him. And Paul evidently feels that that's important enough that he returns to it now in the second P.S. as the letter ends in the final two verses. His description describes the false teaching as a wandering away from the faith, and it is to, it's a false trail that people go down. And then at the end, it's noteworthy that the concluding greeting, grace to you, that word you is not singular. It's plural. If Paul was from Texas or Georgia, it would be peace to y'all, or grace to y'all, rather. Grace to y'all. Meaning that this letter, while written to Timothy as an individual, was written more to, to, to more than just Timothy. It's part of the canon of Scripture and it has application for all of us, as I trust you've seen as we've studied this letter. Read along with me, if you would, in verses 17 through 19, the first postscript. Paul says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, that could be translated arrogant or prideful, or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy? Then in verse 18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. In verses 7 through 10 of this very chapter, Paul gave instruction to those 
who thought of themselves as not having wealth, those who, who wanted to pursue it as though it was some sort of ideal that would make them happy. In verse 10, he actually says, For the love of money, not money, but for the love of money, or perhaps the centrality of money in our lives, is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many a pang. See, that verse is not talking to people who already have money. That's talking to people who don't have it, that think that money is the solution to all their problems. And so they love money rather than love God. And Paul's saying, no, that's going to get you in more trouble than you can ever imagine. That's not the solution to your problems. In fact, it's the, it's the, it's the source of many different kinds of evil to lust after that. Rather than lusting after that, we should be fleeing from that, flee from those kind of ideas, flee from the evil vices and pursue righteousness. I think you recall that, hopefully, from a couple of weeks ago. The, the Greek term there that is translated, pousioi, it's translated wealthy, refers to material wealth, material riches, particularly in people who did not have to work anymore for, uh, to, to gain their daily bread. So people who had enough money that they didn't have to punch a time card on a regular basis. Two attitudes, Paul says, can sometimes mislead the rich. I bring that up to tell you, Paul's not talking about those who are spiritually wealthy. Every single one of us is spiritually wealthy. He's talking about those who have been blessed with material wealth in this passage. Now, two attitudes can mislead the rich. One is the idea that greater monetary value indicates greater personal value or worth. That greater monetary value indicates greater personal value or worth. In other words, if you're worth a million, then I have a certain amount of self-esteem. Get to 10 million, then I must be a much more valuable person. Get to a billion, I must be really important. Get to 33 billion, and I'm one of the most important people in the world. Not so, says the Apostle Paul. There is no correlation between the size of one's stock portfolio and their value. In the first place, all human beings, every human being, believer and unbeliever, has value in, in that we were created in the image of God. And then those who have trusted Jesus Christ and received the forgiveness of sins, received the righteousness of God that we call justification, been reconciled, been redeemed from the slave market of sin, all the things that have happened at salvation, there is, there is an increasing value to that life. But all human beings have value. And in no human being does the value of that person before God have anything to do with the amount of money in their bank account. Paul warned against that as a, as a false idea, a, a rabbit trail, a false trail that we can go down. But he also warned that the notion that riches guarantee power and security is a farce. All you got to do is talk to people that had it and lost it. They'll be the first to tell you that there is no security in money. All you got to do is, is talk to someone who has exceeding financial riches, who's been told by the doctor that they have terminal cancer, and they'll tell you that there's no security in money. All you have to do is sit down with someone whose son or daughter is steeped into drugs, and they'll tell you that there's no security in in material prosperity. 
there, there is a lot that can be done with material prosperity to, to serve and to honor the Lord, but it doesn't, that's not where we should draw our security from. That's not where we should take our hope from, our confident expectation of the future. God will determine our future, not our present financial resources. God determines our future. God is the source of our comfort, not our financial resources. God is the source of our hope for the future, not our financial resources. Wealthy believers, on the other hand, should put their hope in the giver rather than his gifts. We should always be grateful to the giver first, to the gift that he gives as a secondary idea. It's the giver that we should focus upon, not so much the gift itself. You know, the old adage, it's the thought that counts. It's the giver that counts. And if this perspective is maintained, one will be in a position then to enjoy the gifts that God has given us. But if the focus is on the gift, we're always going to be concerned that somebody's going to take it away. Somebody's going to steal it. Somebody's going to jip us out of it. But if the focus is upon the giver, so what? He gave me that. He can give it to me again. Gordon Fee put it this way, The reason everything may be enjoyed lies in the recognition that everything, including one's wealth, is a gift. The expression of God's gracious generosity. So in in verse 17, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Perhaps you're sitting there tonight thinking, well, this in no way applies to me because I'm having trouble paying my bills, much less worried about I don't know what a stock portfolio is. Uh, I have no idea um, what he's talking about. I'm in in no way wealthy. Well, think again, sport. Uh, When I was in in Africa, one of the things that I was enabled, empowered to do, by your generosity, whenever I travel on my, in, in my travels, I, I have the permission of the board to take some of the monies that, that are given to me as, as travel expenses, and usually right before I go, I, I'll, I'll give most of that away to various people. One of the, one of the people that I gave some of, uh, some of the Lord's money that was given here at Pine Valley, one of the, one of the people I gave to was a very, very fine guy. I wasn't ever, sure of his name, apparently his initials are, are T.S., but he was the translator. He happened to be a Pentecostal preacher. Very, very, very talented and competent, effective translator. And when, he, when, he, when you would make hand motions, he would make the same hand motions. I mean, that's how good he was. You know, if, if I would go over here, then he would walk over here, and he, he would do the same thing. Brilliant, brilliant translator. There's only one that I've had that comes close to him. That's Margaret in the Ukraine, and she doesn't even do that. She's just so brilliant with theological terms, it's, it's unbelievable. But, but I gave him, I, I don't remember if it was $100 or $200. I think I might have given him $100 the first day and then another $100 the second day. So let, let's make that $200. I don't, I don't hardly ever read these, these letters. I, I never wanted to sound self-serving. This is not self-serving. I want to, I want to show you what happens on some of these occasions. I'll try to read it, um, only because it's written in small letters. But there's one part in here I want you to see, 
And then I want you to, I want you to decide, are, are you really as poor as you think financially? And I know people are struggling. I'm not trying to minimize that. But, but he says, Bruce, greetings in the precious name of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. Amen. May the love and grace and peace of God be multiplied in your life and in the family or your family. I trust the Lord that you traveled safely on your way back after challenging us with the full counsel of God. And here's the part I want you to hear. I would like to express my sincere gratitude when you gave me some money for interpreting for you during the pastor's convention in Victoria Falls, brother, you do not know how much that money went to help my family, as that was like giving me an eight months salary in my church. May the rich Lord bless you in abundance. You challenged us to study the word and rightly divide it. I was wondering if you could, and then he mentioned several books that he'd like for us to possibly put together for him. And I, I trust that we'll do that. But, but the point is, $200 was eight months' salary, and I can't hardly do the math on that. You know, but but we, we, have, we have so many riches, and, I, and I, always, I always hate it when missionaries come back and say, you should be happy with what you have. Well, we should. You know, we, we really should. The nicest taxi that I was in over there didn't have any kind of insides at all. Now, the one that wasn't quite so nice, the, the driver of the taxi had to get out and push the taxi to start it. I'm not kidding you. He had to get out and push it, and I offered to get out and push it with him. He said, oh, no, no, I can. this is normal. I, and he, with all of us in the car, he muscled that taxi down the road, pushed it, jumped it, popped the clutch, and went. Anyway, this, this kind of guy, we're going to get him those books. This kind of guy, it's like Patton said, that's the kind of guy worth saving. This, this is the kind of guy that's, that's worthy of getting those books. But I just wanted to show you that just a little bit to us means so much in various parts of the world. We are, we really are truly wealthy in, in ways much more than we realize until we, until we set it up against somebody like this, this fine man. I had no idea. Frankly, if I did, I would have... I would have probably done more. One other thing, too, I, I did receive an, another letter that I didn't, wasn't able to tell you about, or at least it slipped my mind to tell you about it. But Pastor Gumbo, who was the host of that conference in Victoria Falls, uh, Pastor Gumbo, I had left him a sack of money when I left. It's funny. I mean, literally, that, that would have been like $100, the, the currency there. But I left him a whole sack of money, and he used it to, um, to feed the poor and to allow some of the children to go to school. I believe that's the, the letter that he sent for us. So to feed some of the poor widows and to allow some of the children to go to school. So if you think this passage doesn't apply to you, maybe, maybe it does. Maybe we're doing a little bit better than what we think that we are. So now, now listen up as if it does apply to you. <laughs> Instruct them. So I'm going to do that. Instruct them to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share. One responsibility that we have as those who have been blessed by God's gracious goodness is to be generous with that goodness, to be willing to share. I've often spotted this. I'm not sure, I'm not sure how God does this in his sovereignty, but, but I've observed it. It seems to me that, that those who, who faithfully 
utilize the resources that God gives them to, to further his work tend to be the ones that God also will give further resources to. Now, I'm not getting into this health, wealth, prosperity, Pentecostal thing. We're not talking about that at all. But, but I am saying if you're a good, faithful steward of that which God gives you, doesn't it make sense that God would continue to replace that? That's why in Philippians, Paul says, hey, listen, you're not going to ever lose anything by supporting my ministry. Speaking of Paul, to the Philippian church, God is able to supply all your needs, he says. You're not going to lose by supporting me, Philippians. God is going to take care of those needs. You won't go hungry by supporting missions. We've got a missions conference coming up pretty soon, and the, the idea is to is to get us focused in on more than just ourselves, more than just our own needs. Yes, we have needs too. We, we have needs for property. We have, we have needs for all, all kind of things that come up, and the Lord meets our needs graciously. But Paul lets us know you never go hungry by supporting the Lord's work. It just works that way. So the, the final instruction, the, the first of the two PSs, is, is that we are instructed to do good, and actually, that, that means with that which God has given us. Whatever it is, whatever resources he's given us, and this is all talking materially now. We've been given many spiritual resources as well. That's been the subject of other parts of the letter. But here we're talking about material wealth, material prosperity. And it's all relative, as I just read you that. We're instructed to do good with it, and then to be rich in good works. One of the blessings, one of the advantages to, to having financial resources is you do get to do this. This man right here would have a more difficult time than we would. So Paul urged Timothy to instruct the rich to view their money as God's enablement to accomplish good deeds. Rather than enjoying a reputation for having a lot of money... Those who have material prosperity should cultivate a reputation for being rich in good works. That's the reputation that you want to have. They should also be benevolent, ready and willing to share with others generously what God has given them. Understanding God's the one that gave it to you. By doing so, they would be ensuring that the Lord will reward them for their faithful stewardship when they stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ. We all have been giving something over which we are a steward. We all have been given something for which we are a steward. And when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, our Lord is not going to expect perfection from us. He knows better. But what he's going to expect from us is faithfulness. And we'll be evaluated based upon how faithful we were with what God has given us. Not what, what God has given someone else. For example, on the, in the, leaving the material realm right now and going to the spiritual realm, Billy Graham has been blessed, incredibly blessed, by being given the opportunity to be the one that God used to, to have many thousands upon thousands, if not millions, of people come to the Lord, and he was the instrument that, that was used to bring them to the Lord. That was a giftedness that was given Billy Graham. Probably not anybody in this room has that, that particular giftedness. You're not going to be evaluated when you stand there and say, Well, Billy's got a million. I, I led three or four people to the Lord. It's, if, if that means, I'm not, and I'm not exactly sure. But you are going to be evaluated based upon how faithful you were to the opportunities and the giftedness that God gave you. What kind of steward were you with what God gave you? I'm talking about on a spiritual level now. 
if you take that in, into its cousin, its very close cousin, the, the material level, God is also going to be evaluating you based upon what did you do with what I gave you. And that's at the judgment seat of Christ. All of us, every single one of us has the opportunity to hear well done, no matter what your gift in this is. Sometimes people get the wrong idea. And they think, well, if you're a pastor, or you're an evangelist, or you're a theologian of some sort, you automatically got an in at the judgment seat of Christ. The well done's almost there. Just get out of seminary, and who laughs so hard back there? Is that... <laughs> If you just get out of seminary, you got at least a half. you got the well part. Maybe the done part's got to come a little later. No. I, I wish it was that way, but, but no. It's not that way. God is still going to evaluate faithfulness. There are a lot of pastors that, that are not going to receive a well done because they weren't faithful to the giftedness and the opportunities that God placed in front of them. A pastor or a theologian or evangelist or, or anyone in more what we would call professional or out front Christian ministry is no closer to getting a well done than you are. We're, we're all in the same boat because you've been given something, both material and, and, and physical and spiritual blessings. And it, you're going to be evaluated on what did you do with what God gave you? Not what he gave, what he gave me or what he gave Paul or, or, or Billy Graham or or Bill Gates, you know, on, on the other end of the spectrum, and you're going to be evaluating, what did God give you? He's given you a bunch of things. You might, you might think, well, I just really, I don't know what my giftedness is. Sure don't have a lot of funds, even though Bruce has made me feel guilty about this guy in Africa. <laughs> but I tried. But the... <laughs> so God's given you something. I guarantee you, he's given you time. I have people from time to time, and I appreciate this very much, that will call or write and say, what can I do? What can I do to help? One of the things that we can do with the time that we have is, if we overlook it a lot, is pray. How are we redeeming the time that we've been given in that way? There's a lot more to Christian service than just teaching in the Sunday school or working in the nursery or helping with set up or take down. You know, or, or any any of the various things that, that we do or playing instruments or whatever it may be. Don't overlook this the, the rather simple aspect of prayer and don't put it down either. I believe there's some prayer warriors that as soon as they stand up there, our Lord's gonna say, Boy, you you really utilized what it was I gave you. Here's ten cities, my good and faithful servant. Be, because you prayed, you utilized that which God gave you to pray I'm talking about praying for others not, not just for ourselves by the way men who were at the prayer breakfast on Saturday have you been fulfilling your obligation that you said you would okay it is not sinful to be wealthy and it's not godly to be poor God has given wealthy Christians resources for ministry that other Christians do not possess with these resources come the temptations and opportunities to misuse them. I want you to note well, note well, Paul did not say that the wealthy should dispose of all or even most of their wealth. He does not say that. He said that they should be ready to share as the Holy Spirit leads. Instruct them to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation 
for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. That sounds very much like what Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? That if we're going to, if we're going to have an investment portfolio, it's, it's fine to have one with Merrill Lynch, but it's even better to have one in heaven. And store up riches for yourself in a place where they can't be stolen, where they won't rust, and where inflation won't decrease their value. And Paul says almost essentially the same thing that Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. That future is not when you reach the retirement age. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about for the future being in heaven with a reference to the judgment seat of Christ. There are things that we do now that have repercussions throughout all of eternity. That reverberate, what we do now reverberates all through eternity. The little things that we do, the little decisions that we make right now, the things that come out of our mouth are that we chose not to say when we could have said them. The faithfulness that we exhibit right now has ramifications for all of eternity. We should not take any one day for granted. One of these days, one of these times in eternity, we're going to have all the time in the world to look back at our lives. Some of us would have lived uh, many, many years, some perhaps just a few years, relatively speaking. But once we get on that side of eternity, it's all going to look like a few. Whether it was 17, 35, or 104, it's all going to look like a few. And we're going to realize that each day had its own importance. And that there were things that came up each day, not just Sundays and Wednesdays. Every day something came up where we had an opportunity to be faithful. I, I pray that we don't look back on that with regret. I pray that that's not the case for any of us. So that there is a storing up process. One final note before we leave this first PS. Wealthy Christians should not feel guilty because they're wealthy. They should feel blessed. They should enjoy the benefits of wealth. And they should cultivate the joy that comes from laying up treasure in heaven by investing his or her life and wealth in what will endure forever. First postscript. Now the second postscript, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus have gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you all. Paul closed his letter with a final exhortation to Timothy to avoid going astray in his ministry. This is not the first time he's done this. This is an important, a very important statement Paul is making to Timothy. I love the way he does it, though. Oh, Timothy. This is a very personal touch. It's also somewhat of an emotional touch. Paul loved Timothy. Timothy was his son in the faith. Paul didn't have any physical descendants. It certainly doesn't appear. And Timothy was one that he had led to the Lord. He loves this young man. Loves him dearly. He wants to see him succeed spiritually. Oh, Timothy. I hope you feel that way about the people that are beside you, in front of you, and behind you. I hope you realize that at the judgment seat of Christ, it's not a zero-sum game. God, God has infinite wealth. It's not like if he gives someone ten cities, you get shorted. You see, that's not the way it works. I, I hope that you, that you are interested in the spiritual successes of your fellow believers. And I hope that you rejoice, and that we, I know you will, you may not realize it now, but when we all stand there, 
and I think that there will be some there will be some privacy there. This is just my guess. There'll be some privacy there, but I also believe that there'll be an audience there as well, especially for those that get the well done. I, I really believe that there will be an audience for those based upon the Bema scene in Corinth, what this is modeled after. There was an audience there, but I, I hope we all, I hope we all rejoice as a group every time each one of you. Get your well done from the Lord Jesus Christ. Way to go. I knew her. You know, I, I, I played bridge with him. You know, I, I, I ministered side by side with that one. And I hope that we're all, we're all exceedingly happy when we see another believer succeed. And we're not privately hoping that they trip and fall. I hope that that is the case. Oh, Timothy, this is a very personal way to end this letter. He wanted to see Timothy avoid things that were going to cause him pain. Just like you, with your own families, you want to see your kids avoid things that are going to cause them pain. And if, if you had the opportunity, you would give them all the, the wealth of your wisdom that you have. It just breaks your heart sometimes when you give it to them and they don't follow it. Paul wanted Timothy to guard that which was entrusted to him. Timothy should guard the truth of the Christian faith that God had committed to his stewardship by proclaiming it accurately and faithfully. It is beyond me, totally beyond me, why any pastor or teacher of, of Christian truth would be sloppy with it. It's, it's God's word. It's a, it's a very serious responsibility. We should never ever be sloppy with it. Specifically, he should avoid the controversies and false teaching that Paul referred to when the letter began and that characterized that church at Ephesus. This is so important. This is several times now that Paul has told Timothy, be careful with these false teachers. Not only Timothy, but the congregation as well. Be careful with false teachers. Also, specifically, be careful to those who claim superior knowledge. This last warning is probably, there's some difficulties in understanding the historical context here, but it's probably a reference to early Gnosticism that was taking place and creeping in, seeping in under the cracks of the walls in Ephesus. Gnostics taught that there was a higher knowledge available only to a select few. If you're one of the chosen few, then you can understand this. But if you're not one of the chosen few, you can't. It was a, it was a, a caste system even within Christianity, although the Gnostics weren't Christians, but this is what they were attempting to foist upon the church at Ephesus. Paul says, run away from these guys. The appeal of the false teachers had seduced some in Ephesus. Some had fallen for it, just like today. Some fall for false teaching. Some look at, some look at the appearance of the teacher. Some look at the presentation, the slickness of it, and say, that must be true. Some look at the size of an audience and say, well, there's a lot of people. It must be true. With that in mind, we can say, well, Islam must be true then. It must be more true than Christianity because their converts are growing faster than Christian converts are. So the, the, size, of the, the size of the audience is not what ought to be gone by. It's, it's the truth of the Word of God. How closely, Timothy, how closely are these elders in Ephesus adhering to the clear teachings of the Word of God? Finally, the Apostle of Grace mentions grace at the end. Grace be with you. This is one of the shortest benedictions of any of Paul's letters. It's right straight to the point. He's going to write Timothy again. We'll study it 
in the not-too-distant future. But allow me in the last five or six minutes that we have tonight to summarize 1 Timothy for you now that we've come to the end of the letter. In 1 Timothy, Paul taught that the function of the local church is to proclaim God's truth in the world. And the function of the church leaders, in this case Timothy and the elders, is to expound God's truth in the church. You see that? The function of the local church is to proclaim God's truth out into the world. The function of the leaders within the local church is to proclaim God's truth to the church. These are the same points that Paul made in Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, concerning the universal church. 1 Timothy is, is more about the local church. Ephesians is speaking about the church universal. The saints are to do the work of the ministry, and gifted men in Ephesians, in the letter to the Ephesians, he speaks of apostles and prophets, gifted men are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So in 1 Timothy, he applies those same truths to the local church. I hope you get the irony there. 1 Timothy is written to Timothy by Paul to Timothy when Timothy is in Ephesus. So it's the same place that got both letters, essentially. One was about church universal. This one is about specifics of the local church. God has ordained the local church as his primary instrument for the proclamation of the word of God to believers. Since the local church has, to a great degree, failed in this critical function, many parachurch ministries have been initiated to fill this void. For those who do not believe they are being sufficiently fed in their local church, participation in Bible study outside the local church is perfectly understandable. A better solution rather than the parachurch ministry, would be to have local churches that preach the word. Congregations that demand that their pastors preach the word. But short of that, it is entirely reasonable for a believer to seek spiritual food in greener pastures. The local church exists to support and display the light of the testimony of believers, not only individually, but corporately. In view of its purpose, the local church must be careful to present a clear gospel and sound doctrine. There must be no majoring in the minors, no claim to higher knowledge, and no distortion of the truth. So in this epistle, Paul warned Timothy about all these threats to the purity of God's truth. Second, the local church's worship must be unceasing. This is Paul's point when he gives us information about the priority of prayer back in chapter 2. And third, the local church must persevere in the ministry without failing. If it's to do this, it needs leaders who incarnate the truth and consistently minister to and motivate the saints. Thus, the need for qualified leaders is obvious, as was the point in chapter 3. For Paul, in speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit, personal example is every bit as important as persuasive explanation. Personal example is every bit as important as persuasive explanation. So there should be none of this, do as I say, and not as I do. And finally, let me close with the same words that I used to introduce 1 Timothy several months ago. Teaching is a life, teaching is life-changing, not only to the extent that people understand and appreciate its importance, 
but also to the extent that the life of the teacher illustrates it. We can be completely orthodox and effective in our methods of presentation. However, if our life does not harmonize with what we say, those who listen will reject what we say. Not only does our preaching then become ineffective, it also becomes blasphemous. The life of the preacher can promote the growth of his church as much as pastoral skill may. People will put up with many deficiencies, and we all have many, if they can have a good example of a sincere Christian. So 1 Timothy deals with two aspects of the subject of order in the local church, the life of the local church and the leadership of the local church. That's what we just got through studying, the life of the local church and the leadership of the local church. Titus elaborates on the leadership of the local church. 2 Timothy will elaborate on the life of the local church. Titus will expound upon how to set the church in order. 2 Timothy expounds the leader's responsibility. And next week, we'll begin our study of Titus. Titus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what a, what a great privilege it's been to study this first letter of Paul to your servant, Timothy. I thank you for the truths that have been taught, the information about the life of the church and also the leadership of the church, about our responsibilities in many different aspects, how we were to conduct ourselves and are to conduct ourselves in the household of God. Thank you for the information. Now, Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit in the days to come, in the weeks to come, and perhaps the months and the years, will take this information and challenge us with it so that it doesn't just stay information on the page, so that it's not just stored away in a notebook somewhere but that it's in our soul, and that we may be changed because of it. May we glorify you more. May we desire to serve you more faithfully. And Father, may we function as a local church in the way that you have prescribed, not in the way that our culture demands, but in the way that you have prescribed, and glorify you in the process. We'll thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.